Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello and welcome to the show. Just a quick note about field trip season, there are only a few spots left for our trip to Washington, D.C. And after you have heard this episode about Mary McLeod Bethune, you might be inspired to want to go to some of the sites that pertain to her life, which we are going to see in Washington, D.C. So go to likemindstravel.com and look at our itinerary. It's a long weekend one this time, so it might just fit into your schedule. As for our longer trips, if you are dismayed that Paris is gone, at least this year's Paris is gone, never fear. It actually sold out in a couple of days. We have good news for you. We've got another trip in the pipeline for this year. The week before Paris, September 22nd through the 30th, we are going to be going back to London. We had such an amazing time last year that we thought we would go back and do it again, but not exactly the same. Um, let's just say second mention of Downton Abbey in an episode. Keep your ears peeled for the second mention later in the show. Um, we are going to visit Highclere Castle. Mm-hmm. We're going to Jane Austen's house. We're going to Buckingham Palace. We are going on a servant's tour at Blenheim Palace, um, where our friend Consuelo Vanderbilt once was the Duchess in charge. I mean, those are just highlights. You should go again to likemindstravel.com and regard that itinerary. It is, I am kissing the tips of my fingers and throwing a kiss in the air. It is primo. Our friend Laura Hart has put together quite an adventure. We would love to see you there. And now, on with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. Mary McLeod Bethune was born to carry the light for others to follow. She's now known as the First Lady of the Struggle, a woman who dedicated her entire life to the causes of education and equality for all, sweeping everyone she met, from sharecroppers to the President of the United States, into her vision for a better world. The end. Let's talk about Mary McLeod Bethune. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1904, Marconi Wireless Company established the official wireless distress signal as CQD. Two years later, it was replaced internationally with SOS. Beginning in February, Russia and Japan were at war for a year and a half. Japan was ultimately victorious and was able to hold back Russia's expansion into East Asia. Giacomo Puccini debuted the first of five versions of his opera Madame Butterfly. The U.S. acquired control of the Panama Canal Zone and began a 10-year project to build that canal. Prompted by a Pennsylvania mining disaster, philanthropist Andrew Carnegie established the Carnegie Hero Fund to reward acts of civilian heroism. Long Acre Square in New York was renamed, and on New Year's Eve, it's home to the very first New Year's Eve celebration in Times Square. The auto tire chain and the Gillette Razor were both patented. Actor Cary Grant, band leaders Glenn Miller and Jimmy Dorsey, artist Salvador Dali, cookbook author Simone Beck, and writer and daughter of Marie, Eve Curie, were all born. Frederick Auguste Bertoldi died. And in 1904, Mary McLeod Bethune realized a dream when she opened her first school and then began to dream bigger. 
Mary Jane McLeod was born on July 10, 1875, the 15th of the 17 children of Samuel McLeod and Patsy McIntosh McLeod near Maysville, South Carolina. You don't have to be that good at mathematics to realize that both of Mary's parents had been enslaved recently. Just to get married, which wasn't legally binding anyway, Samuel had to walk three miles to a mill, three miles back from the mill, work a 10 to 14 hour day, saved his wages to simply pay for Patsy. So he had to work off being able to marry the woman he loved. It took two full years. The majority of their children had also been born enslaved. You'll read that, oh, they were sold nearby, so their parents got news of them, to which I say, I wonder why we let history be taught that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it better that the person who stole your child lives in the same neighborhood as you? It's madness. Oh, well, I believe the madness continues, but let's go on. I love that she had a sister named Monday, by the way. <laughs> You know, maybe when you get to number 17, you're out of names. But also there's that old rhyme, Monday's child is fair of face. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Um, And what's Wednesday? There's a specific thing about Wednesday and why she was named that in the Adams family. Full of woe, I think. Wednesday's child is full of woe. Full of woe. Gosh, I love that series. That was so good. Both Papa Samuel and Mama Patsy could easily and quickly trace their families back to Africa. They all arrived, obviously, enslaved in the United States, but their family's oral histories had only been passed down one generation in the United States. Mary Jane's grandmother, Sophie, heard the story straight from her mother. Then she passed them on to Patsy. Patsy was able to stay with her mother, Sophie, but her three siblings were all sold. After emancipation, like so many others, Mama continued to work for her former owner as a cook known as Aunt Patsy, also a laundress at times. This time she had a wage and a specific goal in mind. The McLeod family were going to have their own farm. The white man, her former master, sold five acres to the McLeods and Papa and some of the older brothers set to work building a four-room log cabin with a full porch and a bathhouse while Mama set to gardening and furnishing the house, which they all proudly called the homestead. All of the children who were living on the homestead or who had grown up and lived nearby now saw this as their center, their hub. And now the family was working hard again, but they were all together and they were working for themselves. And the homestead was in a great position. There was water nearby. There were fish to be caught, animals to be hunted, food to be grown. The neighborhood was full of abandoned plantations with their orchards and their kitchen gardens. And some of the grown brothers who'd begun to work for wages were able to contribute to the family buying 30 more acres. The family began to grow rice and cotton. They raised chickens and pigs. The house became the natural place and her mother, the natural person to come to for the whole neighborhood. If you needed advice or food or medical attention, any traveling preacher who stopped by would make the McLeod farm a stop in his rounds. People would come from miles around to hear the man read the Bible. It had been illegal to teach enslaved people to read. We've talked about masters before or mistresses who had defied this rule and secretly educated their households, but these were not those white people. I'm 
Sorry to say they were more prone to wield a whip than to hand someone a book. Both of Mary Jane's parents bore scars on their bodies from the harsh punishments of their masters. Despite their intelligence, industry, and in fact, just humanity, not one of the McLeods were able to read at all. Mary Jane used to notice white children passing by on their way to school. When do I get to go to school? Well, in later years, the Rosenwald Schools, which was a project of Booker T. Washington and one of the partners at Sears Roebuck, they opened 5,000 schoolhouses for Black children across the South. But alas, there were decades too late for Mary Jane. And though her parents and neighbors recognized her quickness and her intelligence and her memory, there was just no opportunity to send her to school. In later years, Mary would remember the very first time she had yearned for an education. How come a lot of sources have her being Wilson, have Mama Patsy's last name as Wilson? Well, okay, so historically and with her own mama, she had been owned by the McIntosh family and, you know, was referred to by their last name. But when one of the daughters got married, Aunt Patsy was sent as a wedding present I, there's no better way to put that. I, he, she was sent as a wedding present with one of the daughters when the daughter got married to a Mr. Wilson. So come emancipation. And then after emancipation, she was working for, um, this Mr. Wilson, the son-in-law. Oh, that's the sound of a light bulb going off in my, in my, over my head right now. Well, one of the things that Mama Patsy did do was laundry for neighbors, including the Wilsons, a house where she used to live. And Mary would often go with her on her rounds. When Mary was about five, she was doing just that at the Wilsons' house. And two of the Wilsons' little girls were out playing in their playhouse. They said to Mary, come on in. Let me show you what we've got here. Mary, of course, joined them. And she's in the house and it's got all kinds of gadgets. But the thing that she's attracted to is a book that's on the table. And she picked it up and she said, which of these is the letter A? I need to learn how to read. Which of these is the letter A? And children learn from their parents. Remember, one of the girls just smacked the book out of her hand and said, basically, don't touch that book. You're black. Reading is for white folks. You can't ever read a book. She was informed that her kind did not read and could not read and would not read. She wrote later as a grown woman that that moment, quote, did something to my pride and to my heart. Why was it so obvious that she couldn't read? Why couldn't she read? How could she learn to do it? You know, in defiance of this expectation. And she fretted to her mother and her mother said, oh, never mind, child, your time will come. I know it. Your time will come. Basically, God wouldn't have given you that intelligence without giving you the means to be educated. Right. Well, from birth, Patsy identified Mary as being a different child. She said she was born with her eyes open. So that would mean that she would be more intelligent and more inquisitive. And the illiteracy rate, especially among the Black population of the United States, was extraordinarily high. But I thought it was really interesting that later in life, Mary said that as a child, she felt that the only difference between white and black people was the ability to read. And that if she could learn to read, then the whole world would open up for her. Oh, gosh, I got tingles. That's well. And you know, that that is think about that story, though, that we just Mm -hmm. told you in the understanding of a child. That must be the difference between us. Right. 
Right. Is that, is that my people don't read and her people do. And if I can overcome that, then, you know, there won't be any difference. Right. Even if there was an opportunity for Mary to be educated, she was needed at home. She was a very strong child. The legend has it that she could pick up to 250 pounds of cotton a day at the age of nine. So that's a very valuable field hand for her family. Really, how could they afford to have her go away for hours on end to school? Well, the years passed and her family grew in stature and perhaps in wealth. Her mama was an organized and intense, intelligent woman who I think could have been the CEO of a vast entertainment empire had she been born <laughs> in a different time. She kept a lot of threads going, you know, and, mm -hmm. and everyone respected her. Mary Jane had a talent for singing, and it was thought that her beautiful voice eased the load of the workers in the fields. And she was known for her fine voice. Everyone knew who she was. The September after she turned 10, a visitor came along the road and leaned over the fence to speak to Mama and Papa. Her name was Miss Emma Wilson. Miss Emma. Already Mary Jane knew something was different because in that time and in that place, the only misses she knew were white. Miss Emma was the very first woman of color married ever heard of with a title like that. What is going on? The Presbyterian Board of Missions had opened a school for Black children in Maysville. Miss Emma Wilson was a teacher. Did the McLeods have any children that they wished to send to this school? Miss Emma had heard good things in the neighborhood about one in particular, one young girl named Mary Jane. Could Mary Jane be spared to come to school? Obviously, this is a big decision for the family. They had to have conversations about it. And ultimately, they decided that because the harvest at that point in time was done for the year, and despite some of the kids having moved away, they could spare Mary so that she could go and get an education and learn to read. It was going to be a three-mile walk, but Mary was more than willing to make it every day to learn to be able to read. This family had received a Bible from their pastor when they first built the homestead. No one in the house could read it, but it stood in a place of honor on a shelf their whole life. How wonderful to have one of their children be able to open that book and be able to read it. And it wasn't all smooth sailing. You know, we just say, oh, so she was sent to school. The town boys thought it was super funny to lay in wait for the African-American children heading to town, and they would hurl insults and rocks and, in fact, on one memorable occasion, set dogs on Mary Jane to attack her on the road and prevent her from going to school. She did learn to arm herself with rocks herself and the knowledge of some back ways home, and her mother went to those particular dog-setting boys' fathers and read him the riot act, and he agreed to control his children in that regard. But she was basically Ruby Bridges, but all alone, mm. you know? Yep. So everyone's jeering and screaming and trying to prevent her from going to school. And she had to be brave and keep going. Right. And she said that she just kept saying to herself as she walked along the road, put that down, you can't read. Put that down, you can't read. Put that down, you can't read. And it fired her up. She had the mm. determination to do it. Aside from the bullying on the way just to get to school, School was actually more than Mary had ever dreamed of. The classroom was organized by level of knowledge. You know, the newer kids who don't know too much sat in the front and the kids that knew more sat in the back of the classroom. So, of course, Mary began at the front of the classroom 
but very quickly moved to the back of the classroom, like within the first four months, which is about as long as a term of school at that time. Mary did feel bad that she wasn't helping out her family. And every day on her way back from school, she took her then empty lunch pail and went and harvested berries that she could find or edible, you know, uh, like dandelions and that kind of thing so that she could come home with food for the family, which I just, it just warmed my heart imagining her getting to school, having to, you know, go through the gauntlet of these bullies and then coming home from school, filling up her bucket to overflowing with dandelions and berries. It's a beautiful image. Another thing that she brought home once she was starting to feel a little bit more confident with her reading abilities is education. She would come home at night and try and teach her other siblings the things that she had learned in the classroom. And on Sundays, she'd gather up kids from farms all around them and grownups, too, and share with everyone what she'd learned in school like a messenger from another world. And her mother said, again, here's the child that will do something different in life. And then, as she got more experienced, the whole community started to turn to her. When I got so I could do the counting, all the papers were put into my lap from white people or colored people. Let Mary Jane figure up this amount. It turns out that the cotton mill in town had been cheating her family for years and years on the weights of their cotton trusting to the fact that the people couldn't read. And so Mary Jane, not wanting to be antagonistic, but nevertheless wanting to call them on it, said, oh, look, Papa, this year you got 450 tons or whatever. And Mm -hmm. the man had to say, oh, look, what must have been a good harvest. (laughs) You know, before he would say it's a 250 pounder or whatever. Everybody got to save face a little bit, but he stopped being able to cheat her family. Well, if he's cheating her family, he's cheating other families. And it wasn't just the black families in the community. White people were coming to her as well. They couldn't read. They couldn't do their math. And they were asking Mary Jane to check the figures for them as well. And she said, those were the days when the masses needed the few of us who could read or write so very badly. Mary felt again a great, I'm trying to think of the word, she said her heart swelled with an unnameable emotion, I don't know, yearning maybe is the closest we can get, to help her people out of what she called the scanty way of life that most of them were doomed to live. She felt that now, as she put it, the light had come to her, that it was now her responsibility to help it shine for other people. Unfortunately, the Maysville school only went up to about sixth grade work. She'd reached the end of what they could teach her there. And so, sad but hopeful, Mary returned to the cotton fields, trying to have faith that the window to education hadn't just closed for her forever. While she's back at home, helping out the family again, not being able to go to school, her mind is still reeling. You know, what is it that she could do in her life? The Presbyterian minister would come around and talk about stories of missionaries in Africa, people who were going to Africa to educate and bring Christ to the Africans. And Mary thought, oh, my gosh, I know a lot about Africa. My mother, my grandma Sophie, who, by the way, did live with them as well. It's a multi-generational household had told me all about Africa. That's where I'm supposed to go. And while she's, you know, doing all this grueling work, she's dreaming about this life where she could go to Africa and bring that same light you were just talking about to the Africans. 
Then, Miss Emma's partner in the school, one Reverend Simmons, came to the field one day with some amazing news. The school in Maysville had been going so well that he and Miss Emma had been sending glowing reports back to HQ, and preachers all over the country had been speaking about them in church. Way, way off in Denver, Colorado, a Quaker teacher named Miss Mary Chrisman had been inspired to reach out to them in a letter. Miss Chrisman had a side gig doing dressmaking and sort of other fancy sewing in her off hours from teaching. And with this money, she would like to pay for one of the girls from the Maysville school to go further in her education. And then the little girl would grow up to continue their work as a teacher. Could they choose a likely girl for her to send to Scotia, which was a school in Concord, North Carolina? They specialized in education and social work, and their theme was for head, hand, and heart. It was also the alma mater of Miss Wilson. All the pieces clicked together, and the scholarship that Miss Chrisman was providing was offered to Mary. Everyone in the community pitched in to get her ready to go. Neighbors would drop by with pieces of clothing, supplies, whatever pennies they could spare. The day she set off on her journey to go to school, people from the whole neighborhood stopped work to come and see her off at the train station. There were wagons and people on horses and some people walking, other people lining the road. Everyone's hearts were full at the chance of one of them had to go to school. They were so proud of her. And at the station, as the train was chugging and getting ready to go, everyone was crying and shaking her hand. She'd never ridden on a train before. She'd never left home before. And then when she got to Concord, is it Concord still when it's not uh, <laughs> New England? I, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's Concord, like Concordia. Ah. I don't know. When she got to Concord, she was taken to a brick building. What is this? A brick building. She'd never even seen one. Then she was taken upstairs. She'd never been upstairs before. You guys, things you take for absolute granted, she had to learn from scratch. This isn't just academic newness. This is like an alien landing on Earth. Like a fork. At the McLeod house, all they had was spoons or glass window panes. Also new to her. What do you mean I have to share a room with only one person? Only one person for all this space and I get my own bed? Her mind was blown. Do you remember during the Gilded Age, I think it was the Gilded Age Servants podcast that we talked about how when we tour those houses now and we see those little rooms with the two little iron beds, the tour guides often told us that this was considered a step up for a lot of the servant girls who had had to share a room with eight or nine siblings and they would get to this silent location with only one roommate and they would feel like they won the lottery. Right. In the lap of luxury, for mm -hmm. sure. And Mary's attitude the whole time was wonder, but she wasn't hiding anything. She was a very open person. And she's like, you know what? You're going to have to show me how to use this because this is new to me. You know, she wasn't just like, you know, sitting back quietly like, oh, maybe I would do and watching other people. You know, she would just ask, what is this? How do I use it? Mary Jane was so grateful to be at this school, unlike most of us who don't appreciate our luck. 
do we? Um, she was never perhaps the best student academically. She took composition penmanship, which she always got like a fail. <laughs> right. I'm, with, I'm with you, girl. I'm with you. Susan will tell you my notes are oh, not uh, even readable <laughs> by other people. My mother um, was so disappointed. <laughs> yeah. She also took history, geography, mathematics, and music, which was one of her favorite classes. But socially, she described herself as, quote, beloved. Don't you love that? To know that you are beloved. She was known as the person to go to if you needed advice or were sad or wanted to laugh. You know, you look at pictures of her and she's so stern or whatever, but she was genuinely Mary. And that's M-E-R-R-Y. She was Mary, Mary, which in some <laughs> accents sounds exactly the same. And mine is one of them. Um, <laughs> so she was a very, very popular um, beloved student. What I love about her that I found immediately relatable, she wasn't a great student as far as grades go, but this is why. Tell me if this sounds like you. She would, for instance, look up the word inalienable, which would lead her to have to look up the Declaration of Independence, which would lead her to looking up the Founding Fathers and the fledgling country's work to become free from the king. So her grades weren't spectacular because she was doing all this rabbit hole tumbling, mm. which I know you Becca and I as well <laughs> spend a lot of our time doing. Yeah. Yeah. If only she'd had the internet, she'd never have gotten anything done. So oh, no. <laughs> no kidding. I was so much smarter once the internet was <laughs> invented. No kidding. All the students had housework to do. That was part of the requirement of being at the school. And she said, nothing was too menial for me to find a joy in from sheer appreciation of having had a chance. She was the president of the literary society. She was in the choir. She was in the debate society. She was the belle of the ball when they met with a boys school and had dances. I love that. Mm -hmm. um, between terms, she took jobs with white families in the neighborhood to earn money to send home. Um, her parents had been able to move from the log cabin to a frame house, and her money was part of the reason that her family could afford glass windows, which was just like the mark of having arrived, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and if you remember, do you remember in the Laura Ingalls Wilder books how Ma was sad they had to move out of one of their houses because they had just gotten glass windows. Right. Um, so I think during this whole time, that was a little bit of a mark of like, we are now settled. You right. know, we live in a real house now. Um, and so she was very, very gratified that her hard work was going to elevate her family back home too. She was so inspired by the African-American teachers at the school. If they can do it, so can I. They were role models for her directly, these cultured, intelligent women who took her under their wing. One of the white teachers made sure that she always had new shoes, or at least new to her shoes, new to her clothes that fitted and looked nice. And when it came time... This white teacher bought brand new the material for Mary Jane's graduation dress. She was only able to go home a couple times during her seven years at Scotia Seminary. And when she did, she had been saving some of that money that she didn't send to her family to bring her father slippers and to bring mama forks for the household, toothbrushes for everyone. And she said at first she was a little afraid that they would think that she was, you know, uh, a highfalutin. That's not her word. That's mine. 
But no, they were extraordinarily grateful that she was sharing so much of what she was encountering at school. She was also sharing the academics when she was home. She was trying to teach as many people as possible to read. She was holding weekly choir sessions in their yard to teach people to sing in harmony and just just lift up the neighborhood with song. Dang it, I'm getting goosebumps again. (laughs) So Mary Jane had written a letter of application to the Mission Training School of Chicago as follows. It is my purpose and my greatest desire to enter your institute for the purpose of receiving biblical training in order that I might be fully prepared for the great work which I trust I may be called to do in dark Africa. To be a missionary is the earnest ambition of my life. The school in Chicago, the Bible college that she wanted to go to, it still exists. The name now is uh, Moody Bible College. Go Archers. But this... (laughs) Oh, I have a lot of those in here. (laughs) But the staff of Scotia was able to communicate with them and say, look, this student is who you need. She has this goal of becoming a missionary, and you are the perfect place for her to learn how to do it. And she was accepted. And Miss Chrisman continued to pay her tuition and her board to support Mary through all of her education. I want to give it up for Miss Chrisman. The fact that she wrote to that particular school, her father had gone down south right after, like the day after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed to teach the Black populace to read. So that's where she got the nugget of an idea. So it's just so heartwarming to know that someone that she had never met was benefiting from this education that she was able to provide for her. You know, um, my husband's grandma was a Christman. Really? (gasps) Yeah, that's my son's middle name. Oh, it is? Mm -hmm. I did not know that. Yeah. And you know what? Of course, she had to have a name like Mary because, you know, I can't really look her up. It's like going back to Tudor times, you know, Mary, Mary, Mary and Mary. Mm. So Mary Jane was accepted into the program. And at 19, she traveled to Chicago. That's going to be a lot after the Deep South, where she was the only student of color in a student body of a thousand students. That's odd. A lot. This is an interesting thing that happened on this trip. When she had first gone to Scotia, Jim Crow hadn't quite settled into the railroad yet, so she could sit wherever she wanted on the fluffy velvet seats. When she went to Chicago, she had to go through Washington, so she went from North Carolina to Washington. But by then, there were separate cars for the Black travelers and the white travelers, and you can rest assured that the car for the Black travelers had no velvet in it whatsoever. Right. So that, yeah. And But then here's the thing. She train, She switches trains in Washington and she's back sitting wherever she liked. It was, it was so- a strange time after mm-hmm. the Civil War. And I think possibly our Ida Wells Barnett episode, we go into that in more detail. There was this brief period right after the Civil War where everything was a little up in the air. People <laughs> didn't know how to relate to each other yet. Like, The black population didn't fully understand the depths of their actual freedom yet. And then the white population didn't understand how to interact with free people of color. They had never known that before. Mm -hmm. And so during the confusion, there was a lot of progress. And then once everyone got over their shock a little bit, rights and benefits started to be systematically stripped away. And so she was sort of born during that golden era of confusion. (laughs) But the doors began closing right afterward. I'm sorry. I'm writing that down. Golden era. (laughs) 
So when she was in Chicago, um, man, did she see some rough areas. A lot of the experience in Chicago opened her eyes to some conditions and behaviors she had never experienced before. She tells one story on herself where she tried to evangelize at a brothel and almost didn't make it out. One of the uh, ladies of negotiable affection had to order all the men folk to let her out the door. Um, So there was a sharp learning curve as to uh, life in a big city. But here's something that's very sad. After she was finished with her training, she applied so eagerly to be a missionary to Africa. She's in the pipeline. That's literally why she went here. You know what I mean? And she hasn't been shy about saying that that's what her goal was. I mean, she was in her intro letter. Yes. She's been saying it since she went up to Scotia. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I want to be. And she received a tart answer back. There are not nor will ever be an opening for Negro missionaries in Africa. Um, But you have a wonderful singing voice. Perhaps you should focus on that as a career. And I have to tell you, Mary Jane was a bit taken aback. Admittedly, had Chicago been a giant waste of time? What was this for? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What have I been doing? How has she misinterpreted what she thought was God's will for her life, what else was she getting wrong? You know, the self-doubt that hadn't really been around too much had to have started bubbling up inside of her. Well, back to the original school that she had attended as a little girl in Maysville, but this time as a teacher. It was good to learn a new job in a familiar place, I suppose, but soon she was recommended to be sent out into the field herself. And the Freedmen's Board assigned her to teach um, eighth graders under one of the pioneers of African-American education, Lucy Laney, in the Haynes Institute in Augusta, Georgia. The actual title of the school, I think, just tuck this in your brain. It was called the Haynes Normal and Industrial Institute. It's a big name, but it was a very special school. Normal refers to, in case you hadn't heard us say this before, the education of teachers. In fact, I got great comedy. I uh, One of the colleges that I went to, I lived on Normal Street. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Normal Street. Wait a second. Was that in Kansas? It was not. Oh. <laughs> well, Missouri then? Yes. Yes. Either one. Both work. Equally interesting. Funny. Why? Is the different? What's uh, the okay. Difference? I know that people on either of the coasts think of the middle, whether it's conscious or not, as being very bland. You know, they call it the flyover states. So it's funny to think that there's a normal street in Kansas or Missouri. But haha, for the real reason. You know what I mean? I think there's probably normal streets in almost every town in America. Because that's, you know, anywhere a teacher's college would be, you know, like... If there's a church, the first church is probably on Church Street. The first school Mm -hmm. is on School Street, Mm -hmm. you know. All right. Um, Well, I would love to see all the normal streets around the country listeners. (laughs) So it was here, I think, at the Haynes Institute that Mary realized the importance of having been in Chicago. And I will tell you, I do not think that I'm going to start calling her Miss McLeod. I'm going to start calling her Miss McLeod as she is now a grown woman and a teacher. And she set such store by that title when it came to Miss Emma Wilson that I think it's only respectful of us to give her the same respect. So I do not think that Ms. McLeod actually visited Jane Addams' whole house in Chicago 
though there was an African-American doctor working there while Mary Jane was in Chicago. Hull House was not very integrated until a few decades later. But the notion of official settlement house work, where you improve the quality of each person, their life, their prospects, and that way you have elevated the whole neighborhood, that was in the air. We talked about how that settlement house movement was spreading across America, and it wasn't just among the white populace. It was also spreading across all sectors of society. Just the the philosophy that you can help one person to become a whole person to help the neighborhood become a better neighborhood. And the neighborhood becomes a better city and the city becomes a better country and the country becomes a better world. You know, just start small. You can make a difference. And, and hadn't that been Mary Jane's whole upbringing? Yes. I mean, from her childhood home, being the hub for the neighborhood to she herself being sent into the world, you know, by her village to lift other African-Americans. So she's looking around the neighborhood of her new school. And Ms. McLeod saw a lot that could be accomplished outside of school as well as within it. Ultimately, and with the assistance of many of her eighth grade students, Ms. McLeod ended up with a Sunday school class of a thousand children. What and, a sound but, that must have made. I can't, I mean, in the most beautiful way. And, you know, by the virtue of teaching Bible lessons, you would also teach how to read, how to think, how to memorize, how, you know, mm-hmm. you, you know, you would teach the structure of how to learn in a Sunday school class. And then by familiarity, you would encourage the parents of these children to send them to school school. And that was one of the things that she struggled with and overcame the most. She she used her connections to get missionary barrels of clothing and supplies sent to her children. She was able to go into the houses of these children and talk to their parents about the importance of education, of hygiene, and and really just of hope. You know, you don't have to live this scanty life. There is a way out. And please let me reach my hand down to you, you know, mm-hmm. and pull you up. Well, that's exactly what she learned in Chicago, except before it was, you know, the Jesus, the story of Jesus is what she wanted to spread, the good word. But now she's using the same methods that she learned in Chicago to spread the word of education. So she is still evangelizing, but in a different way. I love that. Another thing that Miss McLeod learned from Miss Laney was how to fundraise because the school wasn't going to be cheap. There were 60 girls and 20 boys that lived on campus at the school. But it required a lot of funding. And that's what Miss Laney did. You know, she wrote letters. She made contacts. She talked to everybody to try and get funding for her school. So all of this is also an education for Miss McLeod. She later took heart from the way that Miss Laney had fund fundraised, fundraised. <laughs> what is the past tense of fundraise? fundraise? And marvel that people sent Miss Laney money who had never even seen the school just mm-hmm. by the reputation. And I think she internalized how important it was to have a narrative, to have a story, to have a reason people wanted to help you. You know, you had mm-hmm. to be a little more creative. You can't just say, I need money because everybody needs money. But if you painted a picture for people, they would be willing and eager to participate in helping you to achieve a dream. So that was something that she definitely learned from Miss Laney. Ooh, what she could have done in modern times. That is true. So amazing had her performance been here that the board transferred her to another school in Sumter where they hoped she'd replicate her program. And it was there at church choir practice that she met tall, dark and handsome Albertus Bethune. 
who had also been trained as a teacher, they had a lot in common, but he was the sole support for a younger brother and had had to take a better paid job in a men's clothing store. So even then, teacher pay was an issue. Mm-hmm. Well, sparks ignited between them. Remember, Ms. McLeod was, in general, the life of the party, despite the seriousness of her portraiture. Um, um, And they got along great. Mr. Bethune taught her how to ride a bicycle. And together they rode all over the countryside. I mean, separate bikes. It wasn't a bicycle built for two, though that would be spectacular. (laughs) I like the image of them riding bikes and talking and, you know, hats blowing off and taking a little picnic and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's a beautiful montage. You know, he would bring her books of poetry. And when he heard that she had wanted to be a missionary in Africa, He's giving her books on African history and African art. So there's chocolates being passed. He was wooing her. No question about it. And it's a lovely, it's a lovely montage. After about a year, Mr. Bethune presented his credentials to her papa and they were married in May 1898. She was 23 years old by Miss McLeod's boss, the principal of her school. He was a reverend, so it isn't as weird as as it might sound. Right after their marriage, the couple moved to Savannah, Georgia, where Mr. Bethune had an entrepreneurial opportunity. Mrs. Bethune had a project of her own, a little baby named Albert McLeod Bethune after his papa. They called him Bertie to distinguish him from his papa. And I always think that honeymoon babies or babies in the first year of your marriage are are so difficult. Where is the adjustment period? I mean, I don't know how long you waited. I married in haste, obviously, but procreated in leisure. (laughs) (laughs) As we we were married five years before my first was born. Oh, gosh. I think I was married for 12 years before we had ours. Holy. Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh, we we did some oat sewing. Oh, well, you were also younger than I was when you got me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that I think that had a lot to do with it. So hilariously, the McLeod family, like her birth family, had been so prolific that little Bertie's birth made the 90th grandchild in that family. That's a 9-0. Isn't that amazing? Mrs. Bethune was asked to come, please come, to run this Presbyterian mission school in Palatka, Florida, which I had never heard of before. It was a crisscross location of different railroads coming through there. Some cypress mills. That's one of the only places you can get cypress wood. Um, There's been lots of development around there. Mm -hmm. And so she deployed her refined techniques of social work and education in a proto-2023 fashion. She also had to have a side gig selling African-American life insurance in order to make ends meet. A lot of people would think, and Albert Sr. was one of them, that the wife should settle down and have the children and take care of the children at home. Don't continue to work. But what Mrs. Bethune said was, this married life was not intended to impede things that I had in mind to do. The birth of my baby boy had no tendency whatever to dim the ardor of my determination. So she's like, kids aren't going to keep me at home. I want to teach. I'm supposed to teach. Let's go teach. 
But still, after four years of this, she still felt a drive to create her own school from scratch, a school for African-American girls, the children who had the least opportunity of any, really, in the United States, and who should give them a chance of a future if not Mrs. Bethune, who had been given a chance of her own. Well, a preacher friend, Kennelly, I love that word, Kennelly, I need to start (laughs) using that suggested that she set her sights on Daytona, which was this growing winter residence location for wealthy Northerners hiding out in the sunshine from the ferocious winters of the North. Hmm. Any successful school would need benefactors. She had learned that back at the Haynes Institute. And also in Daytona, there was an organization of wealthy white women called the Palmetto Club that had started, as one of their philanthropies, a kindergarten for African-American students. And so that's it for education for African-American children in that town. However, she saw in that one kindergarten, she saw potential for ladies to interest in her school when she got there. All they needed was, you know, a catalyst. Mm -hmm. The tree was ripe for picking. And she was ripe to be the harvester. Albertus, however, was ripe to settle down roots where he was. He didn't want to move. So she took the child and moved herself right down to Daytona. Mrs. Bethune had noticed that there was a whole lot of people coming through Palatka on their way down to Daytona, not only to build the houses of those very wealthy people, but there was railroads going in in that area as well. So they needed tradesmen and carpenters. Um, They needed, you know, service people in the house. They needed all kinds of employment. And these people were coming through her town. So with a dollar fifty in her pocket, she hopped into one of their carts with her baby and took off. So Mrs. Bethune, on her exploratory trip, had a friend of a friend introduce her in a letter to a local African-American woman um, with three young girls of her own. So someone that might have an interest in this sort of school. And this woman helped her to find a house to rent in which to begin her new endeavor. But before she could begin properly, some bad news came from home. Almost the worst news, if you were to think about it, from her husband. Our house has burned to the ground. Luckily, her husband was at work, but nevertheless, all of the belongings she had left behind were gone. It's almost like burning your boats so you can't go back to your old life. You know how the explorers to prevent their crews from piecing and going back to Spain or whatever would burn the boats. All there was was forward, you know? So on with the new, it was this or nothing. She began what she called the Detona Literary and Industrial School for Negro Girls on October 4th, 1904. She began with five students and her reputation started to build to the point where women who traveled as servants back north with those families every year asked her about boarding their girls at her establishment. Her answer to that was to find some beds. I, I always read these things that said, you know, she started this school with a dollar fifty and five girls, but it's five girls and Birdie. Right. <laughs> you know, her child was in the class too. And it just kept making me think of on Dairy Girls, how James came to town and it was all the Dairy Girls and then this one guy, but it was just an attitude, not necessarily a gender. (laughs) There's your your Dairy Girls reference. (laughs) Before she opened the door on that first day of school, she said a prayer and it included the line, 
Enter to learn, depart to serve. The locals were so kind and supportive. As the school grew, so did the interest. Neighborhood adults would pass by and peek their heads in. I'll teach you at night if you'll bring the lanterns, she would say to the men and women that were poking their heads in the door. And soon, Mrs. Bethune had two shifts of students operating, all of whom paid what they could, some in kind, your egg, your crops, you know, a little grain here and there, a loaf of bread. However, she was constantly short of money, constantly short of supplies, and always had to do a lot of juggling. Once upon a time, she was in the grocery store and the bill came to $18 and it was just, you know, $18 more than she had. And she was despairing. She thought, well, I'm going to have to put some stuff back. And the grocery man said, go ahead, take it. I trust you. It's fine. Such was her reputation. So later that night, she got to her evening class of adults and mentioned what had just happened, how nice the grocery man was. And they reached in their pockets and came up with $16 of the 18, which was more than she expected and touched her to the heart. And later she ran as fast as she could to the grocery man. She was always good at paying people back when she said she would. And she ran in there with the 16. I want to make sure you know that I really appreciate this. Here's 16 of this. And the grocery man's like, why don't you keep half of that? You need it more than I do. I really appreciate the integrity of you running back here to me, <laughs> um, and banging on my door to give me this money back. And he was very touched too. And so it was that, that kind of thing which fueled the early years. People would bring over presents for the school from extra fish they'd caught to one day you'd come in and find a bouquet of flowers on the porch for the teacher's desk, which actually was a barrel with a tablecloth on it. <laughs> a lot of the furniture was made of packing cases. The children had to go harvest elderberries and make ink to write with. Or they would burn sticks of wood and use the resultant charcoal to write their lessons. I mean, it was really shoestring operation here at the beginning. Tuition was 50 cents a week, which doesn't sound like a lot to us. But back then, it was a struggle for most families to find it. One of the things that Mrs. Methune did to help supplement the finances for the school is that she would bake either just plain sweet potatoes, sweet potato pies, maybe some boiled eggs. And during lunchtime at school, she'd run down to the rail yard and sell them to the workers to make some money. So every minute of the day, she's thinking about what to do for the school to get it up to the next level. And she's not afraid to knock on doors and ask people for money to help her school out. And she was very creative. She went to the orange growers who were in Florida and said, do you have any fruit that isn't beautiful enough to send to customers, but is still, you know, inside good fruit? And they said, as a matter of fact, we do. They're called poles, and we don't know what to do with them. <laughs> can't sell them. No one will buy them. And she asked if she could have them. If they were just going to throw them away, they're perfectly nutritious inside. And she would be very, very grateful. And so from then on, I mean, the vitamin C in this school was was epic. <laughs> there was never a shortage of vitamin C after that. Or vitamin D from all the sunshine in Florida. <laughs> a woman that often worked up north gave, well, lent the school her entire set of dishes so that the girls would have something to eat from. A woman passing by said, if you can get that parlor organ back from my house up north, you can have it. And so... 
you know, the music background of this woman. Oh, yeah. Um, she got that she's... parlor organ. She sure got that parlor organ, and it ended up being one of the more valuable acquisitions that she ever did. More on that later. But once upon a time, she got in a conversation. In that same grocery store, a white woman said, my, my, you must have a large family. You know how you do while you're waiting for the man to ring right. up your stuff. And it, it led to this lady being so intrigued that she paid for everything. And through her, Mrs. Bethune made the acquaintance of the entire Palmetto Club. Like I said earlier, this is this philanthropic organization of wealthy women. And Daytona was becoming quite the place to be for these wealthy industrialists up north and their families. The school grew and now boarders were being sent on the train to visit her. And the landlord adapted a barn so she could use it as a dormitory. But Mrs. Bethune had a vision of a permanent location with purpose-built buildings. And I will tell you, I once went to an elementary school that wasn't quite built yet when the school year started. And sure enough, my third grade year, that school was held in houses around the neighborhood. And it is the weirdest thing to go to school in a school that's not a school, if you know oh, what I wait. mean. You were a child. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. When I read that, I thought, oh, my gosh, yes. You know, you'd go in this household room and it used to be a dining room. And it was very interesting. So, so yes, she didn't want that anymore. She wanted the real building. And so she found her dream in a place that the locals called Hell's Hole. That's not very promising. Basically an unofficial dump used by the local ne'er-do-wells for all manner of vices. And if you could look past the decades of junk and all of the trash, the trees were gorgeous, she said. The land was in a good semi-secluded position from town. There was room on two sides if she ever wanted to expand in the future. Most of us would not have the vision she had. I'm like picturing a junkyard. That's basically <laughs> what it was where people would have craps games going in the abandoned buggies that had been turned upside down and all the junk from the lumber mills was sent there and all the broken machinery was there, etc. Well, Mrs. Bethune had a vision and a dream and held an ice cream social fundraiser. And she went to call on the owner of that property to buy it. What is your price? He said $250, which is astronomical, if you think about it. Like, if a week of school is 50 cents, think how much $250 is. Right. For a dump. He's not making any money off of this property. How much do you have for a down payment, he said. And she opened up her hanky, literally her hanky, and let the nickels cascade upon his desk. <laughs> Can you imagine this silence, the stare down? I mean, think about it from his perspective, though. This is going to be free labor, cleaning up his land, no matter what, right? And also, what good was it doing him now? Right. I guess I can trust you for the rest, he said. <laughs> like, kind of like, that's a lot of rest, though. And she said, you can. And they shook hands on it. Now, he didn't deed her the property. She hasn't paid for the land. So it's still his property. He is in a no-lose situation. I wonder, because she is well-known around town at this point, the house that she had been using as her school... The rent was $11 a month, and it was just a ratty, rundown house when she got to it. She didn't have the money to pay the man for the rent, but she said she'd get it, and she did. So I wonder if the owner of Hell's Hole 
said, well, it worked out good for that guy. She's as good as her word. I mean, her integrity is not in question. I just wonder about his integrity because that's an astronomical amount Mm. to charge for that. And I'm thinking maybe he thought she'd never come up with it. I'm going to leave that to the side. Let's let his integrity not be questioned because I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I'm cynical, but let's let that go. Well, she and the students um, and town friends, really everyone, began clearing away the junk. And and I guess the gamblers, drinkers, and et cetera were dismayed to find that half their stuff was gone. But, But whatever. I wonder where they all went. They probably just hopped a train went down the road, but anything reusable got reused. Actually, like big item pickup day in the city. Right. They were actually surprised and pleased to come up with things that they could just literally use to beautify their current building. All year they worked. And anytime Mrs. Bethune had a bit of spare cash, she'd ride her bicycle secondhand to the man's house and drop off the payment and get a receipt. And within a year, the site was clean the site was leveled out. And finally, others were beginning to finally see the possibilities in the site that she'd seen all along. And with only one payment left to make, Mrs. Bethune began phase two of her plan. She had been getting tips from workers for the white families as to the assorted characters of their employers. And she reached out to one Mr. James Gamble, one of the partners at Procter & Gamble, and said, Sir, upon meeting him, he invited her right in to sit down in his library. I'm not here to solicit money. I'm here to ask you to be a trustee. A trustee to what, my dear? A trustee to my dream. What she wanted was a base of legitimacy with a board of directors for her new school. He came. He brought dignitaries. They were so impressed by her students, her progress, and her dream that the board of directors was formed right away in that room. Several of the men and one of their lawyers, I love this too, accompanied her for the symbolic handing over of that last payment on the land and the legal transfer of the deed. See, I just thought that was really good that they thought of sending the lawyer along. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Well, that's exactly what she wanted her board of governors to do. She's doing it all herself. That's the most remarkable thing to me. At this point, she's teaching and she's administrating and she's fundraising. She's doing it all herself. Construction began. Walls and plumbing first outside walls, and they could sometimes only afford one day at a time. Some workers would come sort of as a second free shift at her place after work sometimes, but you couldn't even really count on that, certainly. And the plumber actually resisted putting the pipes into the house thinking, and he said a different word, which I'm not going to say. And he was puzzled that she wanted that in her house because he said, African-Americans don't know how to use this stuff. Yeah, to her face. But the weird thing is it wasn't even like he was being argumentative, which is so puzzling to me. He's like, no, you should save your money. You should put it somewhere else. Like he was trying to be helpful? Question mark? (laughs) No kidding. She's just like, never you mind. You put it in there and I'll deal with the part about not knowing how to use the plumbing. How about that? (laughs) I'll handle my end. You handle the event. That's okay. right. That's right. But she had to take a novel approach to fundraising, and I am full of admiration for all of it. 
One of the things that she did, of course, was to form a choir. She's been singing her whole life. She's been in choirs. That's where her and her husband met, in a choir. Miss Laney had a choir for her school, and often they would perform as a fundraiser. So Mrs. Bethune did exactly the same thing, and she formed her choir with her students, and they sang so beautifully that they were able to go sometimes out into the community to hotels where these very wealthy people are staying and perform little concerts, which were not only fundraisers, but also awareness raisers. And this is long before radio, you know, so I constantly think of how attractive any music would have been, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, much less good trained music, but just you can't just rewind your mixtape. Right. (laughs) It's out there. You've heard it. You've lived it. The end. I have to tell you, Noah and I keep making um, playlists, like for different Mm -hmm. themes and stuff. And I'm like, this is the mixtapes of your generation. I still think there's something to a mixtape, though, that has been lost. You used to get these interview magazines and cut collage things with like that mucilage that had the horrible brown glue that you get and you (laughs) would make collages and then write the playlist on the back and you had to think about the order and who you were giving it to and did the lyrics mean something and then you had to go look on your tape cases to look at the lyrics to make sure that's what you wanted to say and there's like a whole art that's just... Yeah. Okay. But we also had less distractions back then, maybe. Also, do you remember having to wait until the song came on the radio and push the record button at the right time? I remember being completely irritated when the DJ would talk. Oh, Casey Kasem, I have waited an hour and now you've talked over the intro. I worked (laughs) at our college radio station and they taught us to talk right up until the lyrics start. I know. As a person, I was like, no, People are going to be recording this, but that was what we were required to do. You were like, got bonus points when you could do it, when like your last word was immediately followed by the first word of the song. So it's you, I do not have to thank for that situation. Yeah, because I was was before you, so you would have been listening to my college radio station, WGAO, 88.5 on your dial. Oh, my gosh. Well, I only listened to the, okay, they had the alternative music once I got to college at KJHK. Um, was the name of that station. I didn't work there, but I did have friends that did. But by then I was long past taping. I was, you know, we were going to shows and stuff then. But like, you know, literally every song in 1984, when you're still laying out with the baby oil, trying to get a tan, ridiculous, (laughs) had the DJ's voice in front of every song. You just had to live with it. Yep. Well, okay. So back to Mary Bethune, who did not have access to any of that stuff. She took her music on the road and she also kept it at home. Remember that she had that parlor organ that had been donated and she had been making great use of it at the school. Music class was very important to her. You know, it tied in with the religious aspect of how she wanted to train her her students. It tied into art to the spirit, to soul, to self-care is what we'd call it now. Uh, It was uplifting and educational. And so she thought it was very, very important. And she started opening up her parlor with the parlor organ in it one day a week at three o'clock and the entire community was welcome. It was called the Temperance and Literary Society. And ultimately, it attracted hundreds of attendees every day. And the local coachmen, all African-Americans, would take to driving their employers 
by the porch of that school every day that the temperance society was going on. What is that music? They would say, oh, well, let, let's go in. Can, can We can go in. Absolutely. We're all welcome there, miss and sir. Let's go ahead and go on in. And they were delighted. They wouldn't imagine this would happen. And they'd walk in and have this room full of people singing and clapping or listening to someone giving a speech. And they would wonder, where, well, where do we sit? Are we, can we sit? Mrs. Bethune would simply say, welcome, all are welcome. They may sit in separate places out there, but in my house, we don't do that. We don't act that way. You may sit wherever you like. And the thing is, that is so contrary to custom and law in the state of Florida, but she never asked for permission. She simply acted as if, of course, this is how one does things in one's parlor. The white people intermix with the black people because we're all God's children. Right. You know? Right. And there was never a question in her mind. And most of the time, the community accepted it. I think that is admirable. Admirable. Yeah. And the student body had grown to over 100. They had to move into the new building, as unfinished as it was. And it was called Faith Hall. This is like living in a house you're remodeling, but with higher stakes. She has (laughs) burned her boats again. The old place is gone. They've moved it to the new place. It doesn't have a floor. I just often during this story could not believe her persistence. Uh Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Okay. So every time we cover someone, I I have a list that's in front of me and I put down things that they taught me. And the first thing after her was tenacity. You know, I mean, there are things that would just have knocked me out. I'm Mm -hmm. like, I'm gone. Mm hmm. I'm not going to get on a train with a dollar fifty. I don't care that the purchasing power of a dollar fifty was a little bit more than today. There is no way. Yeah. Well. Yeah. The rent for her the house was eleven dollars a month. Dollar fifty wasn't going to go far at all. But Mm-mm. with that dollar fifty, you could put a deposit down on the house, and you can go buy some sweet potatoes and some pans and make some sweet potato pie and sell those. So now you've got even more money. That's just how it works. You know what? It's like those trading things. You know, I was just going to say, and this is not in my notes. It's like the guy with the red paperclip. Right. Exactly. And then he's got a Ferrari or something. Yeah. Anyway, so yes, her whole life is one giant red paperclip adventure. Mm -hmm. Trade for this, trade for this, you know, sidestep to a whole place you didn't think you'd be and come back. It's shocking and amazing. All the kids started calling her Mother Bethune or Mama Bethune again. Just like in her school that she attended, she is beloved. She is beloved. Mm -hmm. We have to keep saying that over and over again because like the quotes that you can see of hers that you can find, she's not particularly funny. But every single person that's quoted in the sources that I was reading was saying how funny she was. Same thing with Frances Perkins. She had quite a sense of humor. Really? You know, because we just don't see that. But she did. She was very likable. Well, and, you know, just looking back on her life and what she had accomplished, you can't get this far without a certain amount of owning the room when one walks in. Right. There's an intangible. I know we talked about it in the Clara Bow, how Clara Bow had it, which is like screen magnetismo that you mm-hmm. just can't define. Something happened when Clara Bow got on screen. Something happened when Mrs. Bethune got in a room. Something right. happened. Everybody wanted to follow her down the path she had laid out. They they wanted to be part of her story in a way that I just don't know we can define. It was something about her and her absolute knowledge 
She had once had a dream that Booker T. Washington gave her a diamond with which to start her school. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and it almost seemed like in her mind, the diamond was there. She just had to had to find it. You know, right? It was amazing to me. Well, here's the thing: amazing as it was, as many fans as she had, she was taken to task from the pulpit of a local black church about how she was training her girls in housekeeping. I sort of cannot believe this quote, which I do believe she heard live and in person in front of everyone. He said he would rather send his daughters to hell than to Mary Bethune's school. And I have to tell you, bad reviews hurt. Mm, Yeah. No matter how resilient you are from someone that you up until then respected. Bad reviews from someone that you don't respect, have a drink or not if you're temperance, have a glass of tea. But a bad review in public from a preacher was a bit of a setback from someone in her own African-American community. Why are you training them to be servants? I thought you were uplifting us. Now, it's the same conversation that was going on, if you recall, during our Maria Montessori episode. Mrs. Bethune and Booker T. Washington, by the way, he of the non-existent diamond, (laughs) thought this was a way that the students could learn self-discipline and fit them for the actual real world that we are all living in right now. Mrs. Bethune said there's no menial work. There's only a menial attitude. Also, she taught them math, history, literature, religion, composition, music, and foreign languages. So step off. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this guy obviously didn't know exactly what was going on in that school. And I wonder how much of it was, and this sounds awful, but (sighs) religious competition? Like, he saw her becoming a pillar in the community, the position that he wanted. Is that possible? It just blows my mind that um, a man of the cloth would be insulting a woman who was led by the same faith, you know, and teaching it to the children, over 100 children. I just, I don't understand the, the Well, it process. was, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, that was a giant schism, in education with the African-American intellectual community was actually having that debate over, do we even cover things like agriculture or industrial trades? Right. Do, do we do that? Does that keep us in our place? Or do we educate our sons, at the, you know, of course, sons, to take Greek, to move into institutes of higher learning? And Booker T. Washington's point was, There's not enough opportunity for all of us at that level. However, this first generation may study that so that their children may live that. You know, we we have to think big picture. Mm -hmm. Well, so anyway, the philosophy that Booker T. Washington and accidentally maybe Mrs. Bethune came up with was kind of a common sense. um, I want to fit my students for practical world because a lot of them are going to have to earn their place in a institute of higher education. Even if they get there, why not fit them for whatever life may throw at them rather than, you know, box them in. So she took that review to heart, but also didn't let it derail her. It wasn't just the physical day-to-day struggle that she was dealing with philosophically. Even some of the people she was trying to help still 
couldn't see her vision. You know, it was, it was right. kind of like, what is it going to take? What is it going to take? And her personal life, well, Mr. Bethune did not have the confidence in his wife's dream either. Alberta Sr. was not doing so great in Daytona. Any business that he had tried to start, it just didn't take off. And there he is seeing his wife succeeding on such a big scale. So he finally said, I've had enough. I I can't support you in this project. I'm going to go back up to where I came from. Bye. He just left. And they never divorced, although she is quoted as saying that she was a widow years before the man died. Not too many years after he left, in the 1910 census, so we've jumped ahead a couple of years, she actually listed her marital status as a widow. She was a little, not afraid, I would say afraid is too strong a word. She was concernicus, lest her separation from her husband kind of reflect poorly on everything she'd accomplished. And she just thought it was better to proceed as if he was no longer with us. Right. And not really enhance that lie, but just to proceed as a widow. So not only did her husband get on a train and travel out of her life, about this time it was thought that perhaps young Bertie should go to a school with other boys. Yeah. I mean, we joked about the Dairy Girls before, but now it's really the Dairy Girls. All of the other hundred or so students, in fact, I think we've gotten up to 250 Two, by yeah. now, were lady persons, and then there's Bertie. So she thought it might be better for him and his development, you know, at the time to send him back to her friend, Miss Lucy, at the Haynes Institute, where there were other boys his age and also male teachers to serve as a role model since her husband was gone. Right. But all of this is a lot. It's a lot, a lot. So we are bereft of family, but the show must go on. So another day, another Saturday trip to town on her bicycle when a sleek, a brand new car pulls up alongside her. Do you know how rich you have to be in the years before the Titanic to roll up in a long chauffeur driven car? <laughs> also, I have seen a picture of this car and Downton Abbey wishes in its wildest <laughs> dreams, it had this car. That's all I'm saying about this car. Hello, said the man in the back seat. I heard your choir sing in my hotel last year. I'd sure like to see your school. And she said, right now? Usually, of course, Mrs. Bethune planned. Cross-checked. Got ready. Dusted things. Mm -hmm. Made sure that everything was spit spot, as Mary Poppins would say. That's right. He took, he took that as an invitation. Absolutely, he said. We'll meet you there. And that car turned itself around, friends, and she was waiting for her at the door as she pulled back up on her bicycle. Well, he'd have to take them as they were. Luckily, the training had been good. I mean, you know, I have a friend. Let's call her Robin because that's her name. Whose house is always so presentable and she always apologizes for the one glass on the counter. And I think, ma'am. You've only seen my house after I've cleaned for like six hours. And if you dropped in, you would have to lay on the ground. But then you wouldn't because there'd be cat hair. So 
Mrs. Bethune had none of those worries, but she's a lot like my friend Robin. It is always camera ready up in this business. Right, right. But he looked around everywhere, everywhere. It was scrupulously clean and tidy, but patched and put together, sometimes out of junk that had been repurposed. Good quality food, but a very, very, very scant amount of it. Unfinished walls, but with a plan. We have to have the work done as we earn, said Mrs. Bethune. The rickety stairs up to rows of tiny, tidy, made little beds. And everywhere he saw industry, polite nods and smiling faces. It was on the way down, though, that he saw something at last that made him frown. He spotted Mrs. Bethune's ancient Singer sewing machine and upon inspection realized that it was broken and she's she just can't fix it. She doesn't know what to do. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I think I can help you out here. So she was a little confused. OK, why is it the sewing machine that is making you away? You know, like right. this whole time you were so cheerful until you saw that machine and now you're peeved. I'm obviously paraphrasing. <laughs> But she was just wondering what on earth. All was explained, however, when he signed the guest book. And this is what he wrote. This is the most heartwarming thing I have seen in Florida. Thomas H. White, Cleveland, Ohio. This is the man that owned the White Sewing Machine Company that provided all the sewing machines for the Sears Roebuck Corporation. Um, yes. And the White Motor Company, which was later bought by Volvo. And wait till you see this car, by the way. Which he had made. In fact, just it costs so much money that if you were to buy it today, it costs you $110,000 in today's money to buy this car. That's crazy. Yeah. So he wrote her right then a $200 check just out of his pocket. No big. Before he left. And she for once was left speechless. And she wrote that she fell upon her knees and thanked God. That was totally unexpected. She was on a bike ride to the grocery store. So that was Saturday, and Sunday was full of happiness and gratitude for sure. Come Monday, who should be back but Mr. White and some workmen? I asked around, he said, as to who was working here, and they're going to finish the work and send the bills to me. What is happening? And then he made sure to let the workmen know. I don't think he officially pointed two fingers at his eyes and then pointed to them, but the message was the same. I do not want any... Cheaping out on materials around here. I don't want to hear about any workmanship that's shoddy. I'm going to come back and and look at you. (laughs) My eyes are upon you. If I'm paying for this, I want quality workmanship in here. And I, you know, I especially found you because you've already been here. And together, she, Mrs. Bethune, and Mr. White convinced the authorities to go ahead and pipe water out to this side of town. The African-American side of town hadn't had piped water. They had to rely on wells that they had dug and piped. They also ultimately got electricity out and sewer also. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so Mr. White is a very, very big benefactor. And also someone gave them seeds and plants and they began a large scale landscaping in kitchen garden project that would last the rest of the school's lifetime. So it's a beautification and a practical project that was begun right about now, too. Noteworthy here is that, you know, there's people like Thomas White and James Gamble that are coming in and doing these big things. And we can look at it and go, well, there's, you know, a white savior. But she was right there helping them. 
You know, does that make any sense? Well, yes. Also, practically speaking, that was where the wealth had pooled. And so for a person to turn around, say this is the best thing he'd ever seen in his life, he often said as he was writing letters to her that he gets more gratification from helping her than anything else he does in his whole life. People would die and leave money to them in the tens of thousands. This is like a little bit in the future, but they are saviors and they happen to be white. But it was Mrs. Bethune's, again, her X factor. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that's, I want to make sure that that's the story that we're telling you right now is that there's no white saviors here. She is doing 90% of the work and they're coming in and doing the the thing that they can do the best. You know, that's what you do when you're a good manager. You hire the people that can do things that you don't know how to do. And that's kind of what Mrs. Bethune is doing for her entire life. Well, so other prominent names did pitch in with gifts of money and time. Rockefellers, Olds, as in Oldsmobile. Later, we've got Vanderbilts and and the like of that. But all of them pointed back to when when people said something in the paper, they're like, no, 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 no. All credit, all credit goes to the amazing Mrs. Bethune. And so even the, quote, saviors or whatever, the people that simply provided the money for her dream pointed all the credit back to her. Even live, contemporary, in the picture, they all pointed the finger back at her. So. I guess I just want to make sure that we're doing the same thing. Right. Right. No, I'm I'm all about it. Spell it out. Can I please tell you something so awesome? I am, well, at first it's not awesome. I'm sorry to say her papa died before he was able to see what she had accomplished, but the school was pretty finished. The garden had begun to grow. It was the 4th of July. There was going to be a barbecue and a festival outside. It was going to be great. And Mrs. Bethune was able to bring her mother to visit on the train. And I, as a person whose mother carried a history chicks bag around, I am so grateful that she was able to see what we, you and I, have done before she died. And I am very, very glad that Mrs. Bethune's mother got to see it. She was astonished. She was greeted as a hero. She was greeted as the most honored queen of guests, you know. Um, They decorated a room special for her. The best of the roses were cut to put in a vase by her bed. She was honored as no one ever could have been honored. I mean, Booker T. Washington didn't even get a freshly decorated room when he had come to visit. (laughs) When he came, he had come with a group of people who were funding schools, just like Mrs. Bethune's. So he brought them there and they stayed over. And the next day, the men were saying, oh, well, this isn't the, you know, high class situation that we had expected to see. And Booker T. Washington himself said, with a leader like Mrs. Bethune, we don't know what will happen. Let's wait and see. So Booker, that's like the diamond. He's giving her the diamond finally, you know. Yeah. Well, her mother was so grateful. It just it was just full circle. Can this possibly be your school, Mary? She would say. The only person left that calls her Mary instead of Mrs. Bethune. But can it <laughs> Or Mama Bethune? Yeah. I mean, she had chosen young Mary Jane to go to school and this was the result. All of this was the result of that one decision. Mm-hmm. As a mother, I'm just going to say that was I can't even imagine the pride that she had that day. And I'm very, mm-hmm. very grateful that she got to see it. Yeah. And and the um, the joy that Mrs. Bethune must have had being able to show her mother. Oh, yes. Look what your belief in me, 
You said that I was born with my eyes open and my life is going to be different than anybody's. Thank you for believing in me. Look what we've done. You know, giving her credit. Look what we've done. Oh, there goes more. I'm getting more chills. I'm getting more chills on this story than in a long time. I have never witnessed such tenacity and persistence like in all the years that we have done this. I have never witnessed this. No. So invitations to travel north to speak at clubs and organizations with which her white influential friends were associated brought great dividends monetarily, of course, but she was able on one of these trips to hire qualified teachers for her school. So by doing that, she could expand the offerings in coursework. She could elevate the grade level, which people could graduate with, and incidentally, um, catch her first sight of snow while she was up north. That was good. That's a total (laughs) side note. That was amazing. She wrote home about that. But with competent teaching staff in place, she could focus perhaps a little on public relations and philosophy. And so when she was up giving a speech, she was encouraged by someone she had just hired to take a side trip on her way home to attend a meeting of the National Association of Colored Women. We have been at this meeting before on this podcast from a different (laughs) angle, which I was amazed by. So let's crisscross in again. We're going to see President Mary Church Terrell on the podium this time. We're not going to be her. We're going to see her. We're going to see Mrs. Booker T. Washington beside her. We're going to see Madam C.J. Walker in the audience. Have we been at this meeting before? We have. (laughs) Well, and we've also been in it when the organization was forming with Harriet Tubman and Ida B. Wells Barnett. She's still in the audience at this time. (sighs) Ah. My friends, this just might be the second 1893 World's Fair situation. We're right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On the principle of you miss every shot you do not take, our Mrs. Bethune took a deep breath and wrote a note. I would like to talk for five minutes about the school I have started for Negro girls in Florida and... The president of the organization, Mary Church Terrell, gave her the floor, told everyone there is a woman here who has started a school. Let us hear what she has to say. Mrs. Bethune was a storyteller. She painted such a picture of the dream, the struggle, the outcome. Not only did Mrs. Bethune go well over her five minutes, which no one minded, she set this room of reformers abuzz with inspiration. She said, I myself am nothing. I was put on this earth to serve and to light the way for others. Mrs. Bethune was so impressive to a group of women that are used to hearing impressive people. They are those impressive people. They passed a hat so that they could get some money to send back with her. And Mary Church Terrell said, quote, she will someday be president of the National Association of Colored Women. That's a big thing for someone they they just met. Yeah. Yeah. And the praise from her, I mean, really, peers at this point, um, although she came in thinking not, the the accolade she received made her think, wait, maybe. It touched her in a way she'd not expected. It's almost like she'd been operating in a whole other world, which she had, and didn't fully understand how unusual and amazing she was. And it wasn't just the people in the room. 
So far did her fame reach that South Carolina State College in Orangeburg, South Carolina, extended the honor of an honorary master's degree to her in 1910. She was 35 years old. When you don't have anyone to compare yourself to, you just don't know maybe how good you really are. You just do what's in front of you. Um, Right. So uh, from then on, she was asked to travel and give speeches. And, you know, the school now had teaching staff and outdoor workers. And they had created so many programs in Daytona. There were missions to jails, to the railroad camps, to the poor. They would visit with soup and, you know, wet washcloths and hand-holding and reading of poetry to the sick. And, and all kinds of things were going on. Mrs. Bethune and her school were raising a generation of more light bringers. And now the rest of the country had learned about it. Her name was on everyone's lips. One of the things that she did in the area is there was a turpentine forest up the road a piece. It's where they went to the pine trees, stripped the bark, tapped the trees, got the sap so that they could make turpentine. It's a messy business. It's a dangerous business. And the camp where all these workers and their families lived was not the best. It was dirty. And and the kids obviously weren't getting any education. And she kind of looked around and she said, you know what, I'm going to come back. And she came back herself with some cleaning supplies and some slates and some basic school books. And what she ended up doing is starting a little mission project for her students where the students say they wanted to be teachers. They would go out to this camp and teach. They were able to teach these children how to read. They were able to tell them Bible stories. They were able to get them singing, the whole place singing. So what had been this really dark and scary place where people died all the time and the owners were just like, replace them, replace them, replace them. You know, these people realized that they had value because of this program that she enacted. And she had her students coming up and doing the work. See the bringers of the light. She's just raising a whole generation of them Mm -hmm. to go out and serve others in the same way that they had been given an advantage. Now it was their responsibility to be an evangelist for education and for treating everyone like a human being, which shouldn't be so radical, but was. Mm -hmm. One of the students became gravely ill and really needed an operation. I read appendicitis. Is that what? Mm, Yeah, I read appendicitis. And there was nowhere to take her. Nowhere. The closest quote, Negro hospital was all the way in St. Augustine, and there's no way she'd make it. She had an acute problem. And while there were Black doctors in the area, they did not have permission to practice or to treat their patients at the local hospital. But somehow she convinced one of the white doctors in the area to admit her student. And when she came back the next day to see how the child was doing, they had taken this little girl and she was recuperating on a back porch. They did the operation on the back porch. She was not allowed to even be in an operating room. They did that operation on a screened porch. And if you're upset, so is she, because she said of the time, even my toes clenched with rage. And the next day when she came to see her, the nurses tried to tell Mrs. Bethune to go in the back door because, quote, Negroes couldn't go in the front door. And she said she'd carry every single student of hers on her own 
personal back all the way to the only Negro hospital in Florida before she would go in any different door than anyone else. And how dare they? And she was so infuriated at this injustice. You can guess what happened next, can't you? Quickly, very quickly, a two-bedroom emergency hospital was set up near the school alongside a African-American doctor that was practicing in town. And you know what? No, she said. A 26-bed hospital, fully staffed with an African-American doctor and nurses with a training school for African-American nurses attached to it went up within a couple of years. Was the only such institution on the entire East Coast. With all that we have talked about, <laughs> you would think <laughs> if 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 this is all she's done, her life was worth so much and she has left such a legacy. But surprise, we are not done. We are so not done that in fact Mrs. Bethune merits an entire second episode. Her accomplishments can't fit in this five pound sack of one episode. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Tune in next time for part two. And thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends, won't you? Or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. We'll leave media for part two. So don't forget to go to likemindstravel.com to regard our itineraries for Washington, D.C. and for London. The song in the middle is number 40 from Etudes for the Left Hand Alone by Frederick Chopin. And the song at the end is Keep On by Cat Webb. See you next time. Sweet little southern girl, such a long way from home. She moved to the city to make her dreams come true. She had a voice and a heart of gold. Hoping she could hold her own Didn't know all the heartache the city put her through She thought it would be so very easy Like daunting me To make her dreams reality She was so optimistic But no one would see how good she could be This isn't a me Became her heart's undying plea You have to be realistic Smile